Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. And one aspect about inflation that we don't hear too much about is how the rising cost of diesel contributes to higher costs of goods, which are transported by vehicles using diesel fuel. Now, while the cost of regular gas is roughly where it was last year, sitting at around $3 a gallon, the change in the price of diesel gas is much more noticeable. It's gone up a dollar or more since last year. And there are certain policies to in place that are causing this. To break this down, we have Joe Trotter, who's an Energy tax Task Force Director at the American Legislative Exchange Council. All right, Joe, so there's been an obvious spike in diesel prices over the past year or so, which really hasn't eased. And this price increase is more significant than the cost of regular gas. Um, now, Joe, you have a piece explaining that there are certain policies that have caused this. What are those policies and why have they caused these elevated diesel prices? So right now we are not turning out as much gasoline and diesel as we have in the past, but the fact of the matter is, is there's still demand for it and that demand has skyrocketed. So that, that's the, the long-term implication of, of reason that we're, we're here. Now, there are a few other things going on as well. One of the things is the move to biofuels and biodiesel in particular. And uh, some refineries, instead of going completely offline, uh, went ahead and changed their refining process to produce biofuels. The problem is, is that you only get about half as much biodiesel coming out of a, a, a refinery at any given time than you do traditional diesel. So between these two, two items, you're, you're seeing essentially just less supply and increasing demand. Uh, we also see other policies like that, such as the federal tax credits for buying electric vehicles. Now, I want to ask you about some of the long-term implications of these type of incentives. In one of your pieces, you wrote, big government energy policies uh, create increasingly bigger government solutions. So what are you referring to there? So when the government gets involved in any market, it skews it one way or another. And what we're seeing with electric vehicles uh, is this top-down mandate that says we have to go for it. Uh, especially in a lot of states, a lot of states laws, California in particular, you, you're seeing these mandates for this to happen. So we're seeing states go ahead and say, you have to put new infrastructure in to charge these vehicles. And there was a big fight in California about who was going to pay for that. And it's just creating a mess out of the market. It's, it's just this top-down meddling that, that keeps happening time and time again. And every time there is more government meddling, you're seeing uh, just new ways in which the government has to be involved to clean up the mess that it made before. We know that mainly China dominates the green energy market and even um, the rare earth minerals have to be shipped to China to, for processing. That's what experts have told me at least. Uh, what's your take on where we are currently as far as being able to be self-sufficient when it comes to getting our hands on these materials to transition to renewable energy? So most of these materials, these rare earth minerals and things like lithium do exist in the United States. Uh, Wyoming, California, Alaska in particular, they all have huge deposits of, of these critical minerals. The problem is, is actually getting to them with the regulatory regime we already have. 
getting a new mine in place and, and operational often takes about 10 years from the initial proposal just to get through the regulatory process before they can go ahead and actually break ground. And it just kind of seems that legislators, especially on the left side of the aisle, don't have the stomach to go ahead and say, well, okay, we're, we're willing to work to make this happen. And as a result, we are left relying on China. And when I say relying on China, a lot of these rare earth minerals come out of areas in Africa and, and even Afghanistan before making its way to China for processing. So in essence, right now, we're relying on the Taliban and China to make our green energy transition happen. And that's just not a winning formula. Right. And from my understanding, the same environmental groups that are pushing pushing so strong to transition quickly to renewable energies are also the ones that are kind of uh, spearheading the efforts to put regulations in place to prevent us from mining for the minerals that we have here in the U.S. It's a self-defeating cycle here. It just in a perfect world, we could just go ahead and teleport these minerals out of the ground. What they want could become a reality. But we live in the real world, something is going to have to give. What is needed on all of these fronts is regulatory reform, streamlining the process, making sure that, you know, if there are 10 government agency and agencies involved, and, and that could just be on the federal level, and not even including state and local agencies, there's got to be a way to funnel, because you know, a lot of them are looking for the same information, funnel all this information in a standardized way and ensure that the process goes quicker, more efficiently, and it has a real time limit so that things can't just sit there in limbo. And that would be the quickest way to help ensure that this part of our energy infrastructure is just able to, to flourish in America, homegrown. Okay, great, interesting chat. Thank you for your time, Joe, we appreciate you. Thank you very much. And new reports coming from China say that the country's population has dropped for the first time since 1961. This poses major challenges to their economy, and since the U.S. economy is intertwined with China, this also is expected to have impacts on the U.S. To dive into this a bit, we recently spoke with uh, a senior research faculty member, Ryan Yonk, at the American Institute for Economic Research. All right, Ryan, thank you for joining us today to talk about this important topic. First of all, I just want to get your overall assessment of the current situation um, of the economic relationship between the United States and China. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the the classic uh, every relationship response, which is it's complicated, and it's been complicated for quite a while. Uh, the pandemic certainly did nothing uh, to alleviate those complications, but the United States and China have had for the last a few decades, uh, an intertwined, very important uh, connection um, in terms of their economic realities. And that connection hasn't dissipated despite the fact that the pandemic changed their ability to produce, the United States' ability and willingness to, to import, as well as uh, the previous administration's um, change in policy towards Chinese goods in terms of tariffs and other limitations. So th I think the answer is it's complicated but it's one of the most uh, important uh, trade relationships the United States has. Now, how do you see this relationship playing out moving forward? Uh, not only the issues that you just mentioned, but also the sort of, uh, use the term Cold War that we're kind of in right now with China, that tense relationship. How do you see this moving forward? 
Yeah, so I think what's really interesting is uh, Secretary Yellen and the Vice Premier's uh, decision to meet in person, uh, first in Switzerland and then uh, for a visit from the Secretary to China, represents, I think, a slight a, a slight thawing of that relationship, uh, where we'll be heading back towards the sort of direct interaction that had been occurring uh, previous to the pandemic, where issues get raised is the sort of traditional way um, the Chinese and United States relationship gets talked about, that they'll raise frank issues in the room together in an attempt to make sure no one is unclear about what the relationship is. But I expect we're headed back towards those sorts of dialogues in a meaningful way. And I think that uh, as China has decided to emerge from their pandemic limitations, um, one of the only ways their economic reality was going to improve was by returning to those sorts of talks with the United States and the rest of the world. And so not at all surprised that's where they're headed. Now, I want to ask you, speaking of this kind of Cold War relationship between us and China right now, uh, China's top economic official urged global leaders at the World Economic Forum to abandon the term uh, Cold War mentality. And he encouraged those global leaders to expand the international cooperation, especially with regards to issues like climate change. What is your take on this? Yeah, so China is, uh, has a long history of um, wanting to be uh, increasingly relevant in those discussions, and this is one of the ways in which uh, they have moved forward uh, in the sort of last 10 or, 10 or so years, which is to be a player in those discussions and to encourage um, the interactions that involve China at the center. So uh, I think it's not surprising that they want to sort of tamp down the Cold War rhetoric because that places them into a somewhat difficult position in terms of how they interact with the United States and with the rest of the world. Uh, that being said, uh, China faces some real struggles in actually doing that, given their relationship with Russia, their relationship um, with their own ethnic minorities, as well as others in the region. The tensions still remain. And despite the fact that they want to change the dialogue a little bit and encourage cooperation, their actions make that somewhat difficult to actually implement. And, you know, speaking of this tense relationship right now, um, the U.S. has taken some action over the past couple of years, uh, certain actions like restricting chips and other certain technology from being exported to China. Um, I'm just wondering, do you think that this will be beneficial in the long run? Will we? What kind of implications do you expect to see from this, or do you see it as more of a symbolic action on the part of the U.S.? So, in general, uh, specific limitations tend to be very symbolic. They tend to be... Um, very good for politicians and bureaucrats that want to claim that they're able to do something, um, but they tend to have only at best slight uh, impacts on the actual relationship. The larger question, I think, comes about in terms of things like trade policies uh, that involve tariffs or limitations on the import of goods. Those can have real impacts on those relationships. I'm a free trader who tends to believe that our best opportunity is through uh, open trade uh, and We've seen that pay off not just for the United States, but also for, for China in terms of their economic growth and their ability to engage the world. Doesn't mean everything's going to go smoothly or that everything will be sort of hunky-dory and there will not be problems and risks of interacting with China in that way. But that tends to be how everyone ends up better off. What kind of risks are you referring to? Uh, those are the, the risks that often get claimed in terms of the export of technology, the export um, of ideas that can then quickly be cloned um, in, in sort of the Chinese manufacturing um, sector. Uh, those are realities. Those happen uh, with some frequency. But in the end, 
trade makes people wealthier and better off. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Ryan. We appreciate your insights. You bet. Thank you very much. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.